Welcome to the Lift Lounge Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Neff. And I'm your co-host, Kyle Cortez. Welcome to the second installment of the Lift Lounge Podcast. Today, we're going to be going through episode number two, which will be laying the foundations for health. So these are going to be the most basic habits that you can focus on and the lowest hanging fruit in terms of improving your health and fitness. So these are going to be applicable for general population, um, natural bodybuilding, if you're trying to improve your body composition. And this is also going to be applicable for people who are beginners, intermediates, and even advanced athletes. These are going to be habits that are going to be an ongoing quest that we will have to be focusing on throughout your fitness journey. So even advanced people, even though these are the most basic habits, advanced people fall back on this. Admittedly, it happens to me from time to time. Um, But then we have to build awareness around some of the systems that allow us to focus on improving those habits to optimize your health. So in short, this is going to be a good podcast to listen to, whether you're a beginner, whether you are extremely advanced. And starting with the building blocks of health, um, we really just wanted to throw out an, an analogy and discuss that you cannot build a strong house on a weak foundation. Um, on top of that, it's going to be much easier to diagnose or troubleshoot problems when these things are being monitored. Um, so the fitness industry is an industry that markets heavily in short form through ads, attention grabbing statements and reels. So people are trying to sell you on quick fixes essentially. Um, So with this podcast, we really wanted to give you guys some practical takeaways that you can start to focus on and implement in your daily habits um, to bring you closer towards your ultimate goal. And when there is tons and tons of accessible information out there, we really have a hard time focusing on what is the most important thing. And we want to just bring that to light. Um, So, you know, something that we happen to see very often um, through these attention grabbing statements is if it sounds too good to be true, you're going to lose 10 pounds in five days. It probably is. Um, So we're just going to take you through a couple different scenarios um, and discuss some things that you guys can focus on. So I'm going to hand it over to Kyle to discuss some of the low-hanging fruit. Um, you know, these are the things we want you guys to start focusing on before you worry about the the minutia and the nuance of this space. So I'm going to hand it over to Kyle. Yeah, that, I think that was really uh, well said, Adam. And really, um, what we aim to do with this podcast, we aim to provide you guys with an overarching view of the variables that really matter when it comes to managing your health and your body composition. So just like what Adam said, if you're a bodybuilder, powerlifter, uh, you know, just even somebody that's looking to um, improve their health, uh, managing these variables played a pivotal role in living a healthy and sustainable lifestyle. So we have four different topics that we're going to talk about today. Um, those variables being your hydration, digestion, your energy expenditure or your steps, and sleep. So like even somebody that's very sedentary, spends most of the, their day indoors, you know, has trouble sleeping, can improve their health like immensely just by being a little bit more proactive and tracking these four components of our health. So just like Adam said, these are the the building blocks of our health. And the way that I kind of like to imagine it, um, if you've seen those those food pyramid images, like the really old ones where you have like different tiers, um, these variables encompass the very bottom of that pyramid. And as you go up in levels, the um, levels of importance um, decreases and the topics become a little bit more nuanced. So for example, maybe at the top of the pyramid might be stuff like supplementation, you know, meal timing, that kind of stuff. So before you look to the top of the pyramid, let's let's start at the very bottom and work our way up. 
before you start worrying about like what kind of supplements you should start taking to improve your sleep you know let's try to um, improve the base level of variables first let's try to improve our sleep habits right and we'll get more into this later in this discussion but I think you kind of understand what I'm trying to say here so start small create better habits and that in turn will lead to a more healthy and sustainable lifestyle so I think with that being said we can get into our first topic here which is hydration and like how much water do we need to drink you know I think growing up we're all taught um, to drink like eight glasses of water to stay adequately hydrated right and this this suggestion dates all the way back to 1974 and I still remember uh, learning this like in the early 2000s when I was in like elementary school right so some of these things are still being taught like um, today and it's like uh, kind of like a normal thing but I think it's a very ambiguous way to kind of measure how much water you should be intaking right like how big are these these glasses are we talking are we talking shot glasses are we talking wine glasses so um yeah I, I think it's just very funny it's not a very accurate way to measure your water intake because hydration levels are very individualized mm -hmm. and i think like even when we get into the realm of health and fitness i think eight glasses of water then graduates to like one gallon of water right so i remember like in high school seeing a lot of athletes just carry gallon water jugs with them right so <clears throat> i think with like general um population of fitness kind of agree upon one gallon but mm -hmm. really like how, how much do you need so if water and like hydration is highly individualized how can we actually determine how much a per, an individual needs so there are two methods that we can um do to um i, I guess track how how much water we should be intaking uh, we can take a mathematical approach by calculating our daily fluid intake via our body weight so um if you're using the metric system, that'll be one liter for every 23 kilograms of body weight. So somebody weighing 74 kilograms would need about 3.2 liters of water. And if you're using um, the empirical system, uh, freedom units, that'll be two thirds of your body weight in ounces. So somebody weighing 165 pounds would be um, intaking about 110 ounces of water. So that's method number one. Uh, method number two, we can take a more visual and auto-regulatory approach by using our thirst levels, uh, the color of our urine, and frequency of urination. So this goes off of a visual chart um, from one to eight. You can just Google urinary hydration chart, um, levels one through three. Um, one being a, rare, a really clear uh, color and then three being like a slightly tint of yellow that is considered hydrated and then seven or higher which is closer to a very dark yellow almost like an olive color that means you're pretty de dehydrated and you should drink some water and I prefer using the second method um, just because two people weighing the same body weight can have totally different hydration demands right so somebody that is working in a office that is sitting in the AC um, probably doesn't need as much water as like a construction worker who's uh, working outside, who's really active, they're sweating a lot. Um, and yeah, like it, it's very, very individualized. And it can get a little bit more complicated uh, when it, comes to bodybuilders and managing water in contest prep but um i think we can save that for another podcast yeah yeah absolutely and you brought up some really good points um you know in the fitness space generally when i had started people would say one gallon is 
the recommendation, right? And my head goes to the extremes of my clients. You know, I have a couple clients who weigh less than a hundred pounds, you know, so it's like I have an 85 pound client. I do not expect her to be drinking over, you know, 130 ounces of water. But then I can take some of my other clients who, you know, 250, 230 pounds, et cetera, um, and they might need a little bit more water. So I think the individualization is absolutely huge. And I love that you also brought up the point with the urine chart too, um, because a lot of people getting into this space tend to be taking some sort of supplements, vitamins, you know, uh, multivitamins, B vitamins, et cetera. Um, so just also being aware that, um, like if you're taking a B complex, uh, your urine will probably look, uh, rather yellow. Um, so that might not be always a really good way to indicate whether or not you're hydrated. So, uh, if you happen to drink a ton of water one day and then you take your B vitamins and you pee and it looks like, you know, glow in the dark Mountain Dew, um, does that mean you're dehydrated? Uh, eh, maybe not. Um, so just wanted to throw that out there as well. Um, and I also like your point with, uh, the individuals who might be working in an office in comparison to somebody who works in a, in a hot environment or they're sweating a lot. Um, that's where we can get into electrolytes too. Um, so for example, um, some people are like when they, when they perspire, when they sweat, they are sweaty, they're salty sweaters, right? So like somebody who wears a hat um, and you ever see like that, that white ring that goes around their hat, um, that's essentially that person losing salt through their sweat. Um, so somebody who happens to identify like, oh, I get these like salt crystals or I sweat and my eyes burn um, from, from the salt, um, then that might mean that you are depleting more sodium than somebody who is not a salty sweater. Um, so some other things I did want to touch on with hydration would be, you know, one of the reasons why hydration is super important, especially for people who want to, uh, let's say, lose body fat, uh, is that people mistaken their thirst for hunger. So, you know, if they are, let's say I haven't drink, drank any water, it's 1 p.m. and they're like, I'm so starving. Maybe they're not actually really that hungry and they are um, just dehydrated a little bit. On top of that, um, it's also going to impact your strength. Um, I don't have a specific research in front of me right now, but I have heard that you know one to two percent dehydration will severely impact your strength. And if that is impacting your strength, it's impacting your performance, if it's impacting your performance, your workout's not as high quality as it could have been. Um, so just making sure you're staying on top of that as well for your performance aspect. Um, and if we get into, um, again, we're getting into some nuance here, but um, even muscular fullness, it's going to affect your muscular fullness because uh, when you train, you're going to be signaling for the muscles to store glycogen. And with glycogen storage comes water storage as well. Um, so if you ever feel like you can't get a pump in the gym, um, you feel kind of, your muscles feel kind of flat and depleted, that very well could be that you are dehydrated a little bit. Um, so another thing, um, like a great practical takeaway would be spacing your liquids out throughout the day. So if somebody is aiming for, let's say one gallon and they drink a gallon of water between 1 PM and 3 PM, that is not going to hydrate them as well as if they took that one gallon and spaced it out throughout their day. So maybe they had 25 ounces upon waking and then they spaced it out every four to five hours, right? Or maybe they sip on it throughout the day. Um, that is going to hydrate you much, much more efficiently than just drinking a massive amount in one sitting. Um, yeah. Do you have anything to add to that, Kyle? Yeah, I like that you brought up the electrolytes. So for me, I struggle at times to stay hydrated, especially when I'm very busy at work. I work like a very construction type of job. So I'm working, I'm, while I'm working, I'm climbing stuff, I'm carrying material on my shoulders, I'm sweating a lot. Mm -hmm. And you know, I'm not always thinking about stopping to drink water. You know, it's not always on my mind. When you're, when you're working, sometimes you're, you're just in the groove, right? 
mm-hmm. and I think I I suffer um, later on in the day when I have to go to the gym because I end up cramping, and you know by that time it's it's already too late, and and like you said, like chugging a lot of water isn't going to hydrate you um, versus if you were to space that out. So I like to use an electrolyte packet um, while I'm at work when I have like really busy days. And um, like you said, uh, you really want to space out your liquids. Uh, you want to find a way to keep track of your fluid intake. So for me, I use my one liter uh, Yeti flask. I fill that up at least three times. Um, just any tangible way for you to track your water. If you have to carry a gallon of water, whatever that may be, whatever helps you. Uh, and like you said, um, why hydration is important. We want to ensure that um, we're keeping performance as high as possible, right? So. Mm-hmm. Even as much as like a 3% decrease in body weight from fluid loss can cause a negative impact on strength, just like you said. And that becomes more important when we're in a deficit, right? So we want to keep strength high. We want to keep gym performance high to retain as much muscle as we can. Yep, I love that. Absolutely love that, especially with finding a system that allows you to track your water without actually having to track your water. Um, because that can bog you down, especially if you're tracking your workouts, you're tracking your steps, you're tracking your food. Um, so, you know, I have a, a blender bottle and it's one of the tall blender bottles. It's like 45 ounces. So I know if I drink three of these a day, I'm getting plenty of hydration. I'm getting about 150 ounces a day. Um, so if you have a water bottle, uh, let's say it's 25 ounces, you're trying to get 125 ounces a day. You just know you got to get through five of those. And that's, easy enough to remember. Um, And then also, um, as far as the, and this is just a little tidbit I want to throw in there, uh, but if you're in a really hot environment, maybe the gym's like 90 degrees or something, and you have really cold water, that cold water is not going to hydrate you as efficiently as, let's say, room temperature water. Uh, Because that cold water, you're going to have to drink it, your body's going to have to warm it up, Um, so possibly having like a warmer water, um, in a warmer environment might be a better option for hydration. Um, and then I also wanted to just talk about, uh, coffee. So people tend to have coffee very often. Um, in my opinion, if you are drinking two to three cups of coffee, you could probably get away with tracking that as water. Um, now if you're drinking like five, six, seven, eight cups of coffee. Um, That's a topic for another discussion um, when it comes to the caffeine. Um, Caffeine is a diuretic, so it can make you excrete more water. Um, But I will say that uh, coffee will count as long as you're within those parameters. Um, Again, you know, this is the, the nuanced stuff, but I believe one of my clients told me that um, I think it was Jordan, Jordan Syatt on Instagram. Uh, I think he's a pretty popular account. Uh, but I think he did something where he just drank, uh, coffee for the entire day and tested like his hydration status at the end of the day. And it was essentially the exact same as when he drank water. Um, not saying that you should go out and just drink a bunch of coffee, uh, but just wanted to throw that out as well. Um, and then the last thing for hydration uh, we do want to talk about would be alcohol. Um, so alcohol uh, is its own macronutrient. So there are technically four macros. We have fats, we have protein, we have carbs, and then we have alcohol. Um, so alcohol is seven calories for one gram. Um, and we recommend that you track alcohol through carbohydrates or fats. Um, so a simple practical takeaway for you guys, if you are drinking, let's say uh, a light beer and that light beer is a hundred calories, then you can take that 100 calories and just divide it by the macronutrient that you do want to track it as. So if we're going to track it as carbohydrates, that's going to be four calories for one gram. 
So if we have a beer that is 100 calories, we divide that by four, that's gonna be 25 grams of carbohydrates that you can track that as. So now you're accounting for those calories through the alcohol and the carbs and all the other stuff in there, um, but you're at least accounting for it through your macros. Um, another thing we wanted to talk about is that alcohol does dehydrate you. Um, so I had saw something online that was if you take a 16 ounce beer, you're gonna have to drink 16 ounces of water plus half of that, so another eight ounces of water, 24 ounces of water that you're gonna have to consume to get yourself back to a hydration status that you were in before you drank that 16 ounce beer. Um, so just be aware that alcohol will dehydrate you. And then alcohol also contains ethanol. Ethanol leaches our B vitamins. So with that being said, possibly supplementing with a B vitamin post-drinking um, could be a really good idea. Um, and I wouldn't recommend taking the B vitamin in the evening of drinking. I would recommend taking it in the morning, the next morning. Um, so my favorite is the bioactive B vitamin complex from Life Extension. And I do believe it is um, on Amazon very, very cheap. Um, I think it might be less than $10, but... Sorry. I don't just have wanted an to. For that. Oh, oh, I guess that was my my Alexa in the background. Um, but I think that pretty much sums up hydration. Unless uh, Kyle, you have something to say? Uh, no, nothing for me. I think you nailed that one on the head, Adam, with um, alcohol and coffee. So that brings us into our next topic, which is digestion. And I think digestion and gut health is a very highly overlooked topic when it comes to our daily health. Um, using me for an example, um, prior to working with Adam, like I never really cared about the, the stomach, ache, stomach aches that I got or the bowel movements that I was unable to have. I just thought, oh, it is what it is. I just have to deal with it kind of thing. And, you know, when you're not able to digest the foods that you're eating, you know, you're not absorbing and partitioning these nutrients that you're putting into your body, right? And when digestion becomes an uh, a more chronic issue, that's when we start to see a little bit more adverse effects, such as inflammation, like on the systemic level. So eating foods that you're allergic to, or foods that your bodies um, cannot tolerate, can cause inflammation, and that can spread, you know, through your body and like through your skin. So for me, um, during high school, uh, whey protein used to give me severe acne. Right, so I had to kind of step away from drinking whey protein for a while, and it was kind of through trial and error that I had to find brands that didn't give me an allergic reaction, right? And a more, a more recent story, actually, this was back in April, late April, early May, um, I decided to give a, a new brand of whey a try, so I was... Um, I was intaking the Vitamin Shop Pro 24 Whey, and then I just decided to try uh, the Whey Isolate, and I broke out with the most horrendous rash I've ever had in my life. And you know, it, it, it gradually got worse as I um, was ingesting this this protein. It was an instant. So um, the rash originated in places where I would sweat. And then it spread over my entire upper body. So it was exiting through my skin, right? And I was consuming this, this protein for a few weeks. And I was kind of like refusing to accept the problem came from the protein, you know? And really, that was the only thing that changed about my diet, which is a really practical, a really good practical takeaway for you guys is to have structure in your diet, you know? It makes things a lot easier to pinpoint potential food allergies or you know foods that you're intolerant to like you don't have to have a meal plan um, you know but find foods that really sit well with you foods that you can digest and just rotate them and if you have a very diverse diet that changes daily it can be hard to pinpoint potential food intolerances right so in my example, 
I had to remove that food and then reintroduce it to ensure that that food uh, that I was intaking was really the, the trigger for that reaction. Yeah, I, uh, I can actually 100% relate. I had a similar scenario happen to me probably, probably three years ago. Um, and this was with first forms protein and it was, uh, it was their isolate as well. Um, so after you removed that food, after you removed that whey protein, um, and took a break from it, did you add that back into your diet or did you just change to a different protein altogether? I just changed to a different protein altogether, but it yeah. was, yeah, yeah. Through trial and error. So it took me a little while to find, um, brands that actually worked for me. So I think... Yeah. Like in the early days, I was um, having stuff like Synthesix, you know, with like a lot of these like proprietary blends of proteins. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. yeah, I did the same thing. I, I was taking uh, the first form stuff and I, I immediately was just like, this has to be the way. So I ended up just transitioning to a like a vegan protein. I think I used uh, Nutrex for a while. And then eventually got into the beef isolate at True Nutrition. Um, so I actually took like two to three years off of whey protein. Um, and then I went to True Nutrition's whey isolate um, and actually did much, much better with it. And I'm currently taking that now. Um, but that's a great takeaway if you guys ever do identify certain foods to bother your skin, your digestion. Um, just remove it from your diet for a couple of weeks. Um, assess whether or not those triggers have improved and then slowly titrate the dose back up. So let's say if you were drinking two scoops of protein, you notice after a couple of weeks of dosing with that, that you have some, some, some gut issues, some skin issues, then maybe when you remove it for a couple of weeks and you add it back in, you only start with maybe like half a scoop versus two scoops um, and see if those symptoms improve at all and then titrate it back up. Um, some other things I do want to talk about when it comes to digestion would be just some quick practical takeaways. So um, mastication or just the chewing process. So making sure that you guys are just chewing through your food rather than inhaling it. Um, so taking like 20 to 30 chews on average per bite. Um, so not only is that going to mechanically break the food down more, so that your when it gets into your stomach, your stomach has your stomach acid has uh, more surface area to digest that food, but it's also going to release amylase or saliva and start to chemically break down the food in your mouth, um, which will also improve your digestion overall. Um, so another thing would be just slowing down your eating. So um, I don't know if we've talked about the autonomic nervous system yet on this podcast, but the autonomic nervous system, we have two branches. So we have the sympathetic side and we have the parasympathetic side. So the sympathetic side would be that fight or flight where you have stress hormones flowing, you have cortisol flowing, you are under stress. So you're not going to be prioritizing your digestion at that point. Uh, and then we have the other side, which is the parasympathetic side. And that's also known as rest and digest. This is where we don't have stress hormones coursing through us. Our resting heart rate is much lower. We're prioritizing digestion. We're prioritizing our recovery. So if we can, eating in a parasympathetic state. So a real quick way to possibly get yourself from a sympathetic state to a parasympathetic state would just be using your breath. So doing some prolonged exhales. Um, so exhales, breathing out. Maybe you typically breathe out and it takes you three or four seconds. Um, so maybe just counting in your head up to 10 or 15 seconds on your exhales do a couple breaths and that can help calm you down, bring your resting heart rate down and pull you into a parasympathetic state so that you can optimize your digestion. Um, on top of that, some other things would be avoiding distracted eating. Um, so, you know, not scrolling on Instagram as you're eating, um, not watching TV while you're shoveling food in. And then you look down and you're like, how did I finish that? 
Um, and then I think even, I think Jackson Peos covered something recently on um, satiety when it comes to watching TV. Um, you might've picked up on that. I'll let you talk on that here in a second. Um, and then also um, to the point with the autonomic nervous system is do not force feed yourself when you're overly sympathetic. So if you finish a workout, your heart rate's up, uh, you feel very, very uh, fight or flighty. Um, I do not recommend just crushing a bunch of food immediately. Um, when you are sympathetic and you consume a good amount of food, um, you can have some disrupted digestion. You might have some loose stool. Um, from my experience, when I'm overly sympathetic and I have like a protein shake and um, maybe some rice post-workout, um, I will usually get some some loose stool. Um, so I do recommend that you try and calm yourself down before you have a post-workout meal. Um, but yeah, I think that might cover everything on the digestion piece. Um, I'm going to throw it back to you, Kyle. Yeah, a lot of great takeaways there. You know, with the, the sympathetic um, fight or flight, um, you know, our in that division, like our heart rate increases and our uh, respiratory rate increases and stuff like um, body processes that aren't as important during that time, with, um, like our digestion and urination, those get down-regulated when we're in, we're in a sympathetic state. So, yeah, we really want to be in a parasympathetic state when we're... Um, when we're eating and digesting, right? So that's when um, all of these, um, sorry, <laughs> that's when um, all of these body processes like um, digestion and waste removal are, are optimized, right? Mm -hmm. So we really want to try to get ourselves to relax before we start eating. I know me personally, when I um, have like a pulse workout shake immediately after, um, working out, I will get a stomach ache and yeah, lose stools as well. Yeah. Another topic would be also spacing your meals out adequately so that you are allowing for digestion. Um, so I know a really popular thing right now is, is IF or intermittent fasting, um, which can be a viable tool in certain scenarios for people. Um, but I personally don't like to utilize it, especially if somebody is having any digestive problems or even bulking. Um, they're trying to gain weight. They're eating a surplus of calories. Um, so, you know, on top of making sure that you space out your food throughout the day so that you can optimize your digestion, but you're also spiking your muscle protein synthesis multiple times, uh, which is going to be adequate for body composition goals as well. Um, so, you know, if you're only spiking muscle protein synthesis, let's say one time in a day, that's not going to optimize body composition in relation to spiking it, let's say four or five times a day. Um, Lane Norton brought this to my attention, um, and I think he's done quite a bit of uh, discussion on this. But um, some other things would be if you are bulking, really prioritizing that you are getting your meals in, um, in spaced out timeframes, right? Now, if you're cutting, I still recommend that you get um, adequate feedings throughout your day. But if you are cutting because you have less calories in general, this is where some individualization can come into play. So maybe your adherence is a little bit better if you only have three meals when you're cutting versus having uh, five meals just because you're gonna be able to consume more calories in one sitting, and that might make you feel a little bit more satiated. Um, anything else to add to that, Kyle? Nope, nothing for me. I think you nailed that one. Cool, so we'll go ahead and we'll move on to the next talking point, which would just be expenditure. So we, I don't know if we talked about this on the first podcast or not, but, um, generally, when I onboard clients, we have to go through the discussion of the energy equation. So um, this is essentially the foundation for whether or not you're going to be gaining body weight or losing body weight or even maintaining body weight. Um, so we have calories in versus calories out. So calories in would be how many calories you're consuming on a regular or a, a weekly basis. 
And then calories out would be how many calories you are expending on a daily uh, on a daily time frame, right? Um, so if you are essentially burning more calories than you're taking in, then you're going to be losing body weight and vice versa. So as far as people who have body composition goals, we really like to prioritize and talk about the importance of NEAT. So N-E-A-T, and that stands for non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So this would allow you to burn more calories throughout your day just by moving, just by you're not dedicating any time to do cardio or anything like that. Um, so maybe some practical takeaways for improving your NEAT, your non-exercise activity thermogenesis, might be something like taking out the trash and taking out the recycling separately, right? So then you double the amount of steps that you get. Uh, maybe you're parking further away in a parking lot when you're going to grocery stores um, or you're going shopping or something along those lines. Um, or even if you're on a phone call and you're able to like get up and pace around your office, around your house, maybe you even go for a walk. Um, yeah, do you have anything add, to add to the, the neat discussion? Yeah, um, neat, it actually is a part of this bigger picture in metabolism, right? So your metabolism is comprised of um, four different parts, which add up to your total daily energy expenditure, right? So these four things we had neat, what Adam said, uh, we have our resting metabolic rate, which accounts for 60% of the calories that we burn in a day. So this refers to the amount of energy that we burn at rest when uh, just to keep our bodies fun functioning, essentially, right? Just to keep the lights on. The next topic would be the thermic effect of food or diet-induced thermogenesis, which accounts for 10% of our total daily energy expenditure. And that is uh, the energy that your body burns through thermogenesis, right? To digest and assimilate the food that you eat. Uh, we have exercise activity thermogenesis, which is 5 to 10% of our total daily energy expenditure. And that is the intentional exercise that we do. And like Adam said that he explained earlier, your NEAT, which actually accounts for 15 to 25% of the calories that you burn per day. And this includes all of the non-intentional physical activity that we, that we do, right? The activities of daily life, like, yeah, walking, fidgeting, adjusting your posture. So NEAT is the most modifiable component of our total daily energy expenditure. So um, you can see just from that metric alone, how much more NEAT contributes to the total energy balance equation, right? So um, should you be doing cardio over um, increasing your NEAT? I would say increasing NEAT would be the more viable option. And if you think about it like logically as well, out of the 16 hours on average that we spend awake, two hours we spend um, in the gym, and the other 14 hours, that's all NEAT, right? I think that's very highly um, underutilized. And it's not something that we, we typically think about. You know, the first thing that we think, uh, think about when it comes to energy expenditure is, okay, I got to do more cardio. I got to burn 500 more calories on this um, elliptical, right? And while I, I do think cardio is a tool and does have its, its place, like improving cardiovascular health, um, is it essential to body recomposition? Um, I, I would say not. But yeah, it does have its applications. I think increasing NEAT would be the more viable option. Yeah, yeah, I agree 100%. And if you're already doing, let's say, some resistance training, maybe you do have some dedicated cardio, improving your NEAT is going to improve how many calories you're expending and not add any more fatigue, right? So you're not going to be going into the gym and, you know, absolutely crushing yourself on a, an elliptical or a spin bike and then having to recover from that. Uh, rather, you are just burning calories through more of your habits, right? And I think a lot of times when people get 
get into this space and they try to lose body weight or improve their composition, uh, they tend to want to do these extreme things like uh, I'm going to go run a mile a day or I'm going to go do this uh, Orange Theory class. It's intense. They say you burn 900 extra calories a day, uh, but people don't understand that there's a cost when it comes to doing those things. And there's really not a big cost to improving your NEAT at all. Um, so one thing that I recommend people do would just be if you're starting out, try to get a walk in every single day. So rather than going and doing Orange Theory twice a week um, and crushing yourself in there and then being like, ah, why is my back hurt? Why is my shoulder hurt? Um, maybe what would be a better option would just be I'm going to get outside and walk for 30 minutes every single day, um, which we can then discuss some of the benefits of just of walking. Um, so if you are outside, you're getting vitamin D. Now, typically you'll need about three to five minutes full sun in the summer to get adequate amount of vitamin D. Um, and then as far as in the winter, and this is again, very dependent upon where you're located, uh, but even overcast in winter, it's gonna take you about 30, 30 minutes to get um, adequate levels of vitamin D. Um, so if you're unable to do that, that's where we would say, you know, if we have a blood test and it shows that you are deficient in vitamin D, then we might supplement with something like that. Um, and then also just getting outside, being in nature, getting fresh air. Um, I have a, a, a note down to talk about the forest bathing book. Um, so if you guys are unfamiliar with forest bathing, um, just do a quick Google search of that and you'll be able to find quite a bit of a uh, lot of benefit on forest bathing and what that is specifically. Um, and then also you get some, some, some time alone when you're, when you're out walking. So you could have, uh, you could be listening to this wonderful podcast. Uh, you could be listening to uh, some music that you really enjoy um, or maybe even spending quality time with a loved one while you are burning additional calories. Um, yeah, I think expenditure wise, um, I also wanted to just touch a little bit on the caffeine thing. Um, so out of all of the supplements out there that tout uh, fat loss and uh, improved metabolism and whatnot, um, caffeine is one of those drugs, we'll call it a drug because that's what it is, um, that actually does improve your expenditure. Um, it could be through the fact that you're moving a little bit more, you're fidgeting a little bit more. Um, so I just wanted to throw that out there. It can be a viable tool to utilize a little bit of caffeine to improve your metabolic rate, maybe even downregulate a little bit of your appetite. Um, yeah, anything to add to the expenditure list? Nope, nothing for me. So I think we can go into the next topic, which is sleep. So before we get into sleep, we can um, go over circadian rhythms. You know, your body has a bunch of different rhythms that regulate um you know different bodily functions but the one that we're going to be mainly focused on is the sleep-wake cycle so our bodies have a master clock and essentially they need to be reset to 24 hours by way of the light dark cycles right so we're animals that operate in the day and we sleep and we fast at night so our bodies are um our bodily functions are actually more optimized during the daytime. So processes like digestion and immune system function. So when we are exposed to light is important in setting our biological clocks to the light dark cycles of the day. So when we wake up, we really want to anchor our circadian rhythms early in our biological day. So shortly after waking. We want to expose ourselves to blue light, and this will um, advance our master clocks and our sleep times accordingly. So it'll make us want to go to bed earlier and wake up earlier the next day. So getting sunlight exposure um, is very important. So um, if you're very sedentary, try to get out into nature, try to get that sunlight um, early in the day. Depending on what season it is um, and where you live, uh, if you can't get any sunlight, you can also get a happy light, something that emits um, 10,000 
uh, Lux um, in the first 30 minutes of your wake, really yeah, anchoring I, down that um, circadian rhythm through through light. Yeah, I absolutely love the uh, commentary around the happy light. Um, I use this every single morning I wake up um, just because it's not always feasible for me to get outside and go for a walk and do all of that. Um, if you guys want to listen to more in-depth information about this, definitely check out the Huberman Lab podcast. He has just great content when it comes to the circadian rhythm and optimizing, um, optimizing your habits and sleep habits, right? Um, so you had talked about essentially when you wake up trying to get yourself exposed to sunlight. Um, so that's going to stop the production of melatonin through the pineal gland. Um, and the same can be said in the evening, but the opposite, right? So in the evening, trying to avoid blue light um, from your TV, from your cell phone, fluorescent lights and stuff like that. Because if you are getting blue light, let's say at 9 p.m. and your bedtime is 9.15, then your body has not started producing that melatonin to make you feel groggy, sleepy, and get a quality sleep. So what I like to do is I actually have on my, I have an iPhone and I believe it's called focus mode or something along those lines um, where it actually takes the, uh, the color and makes it more of a warm color versus a blue color. Um, so you're not getting as much of that blue light. Um, and then on top of that, we have, uh, we have hue lights here at the home and we turn the hue lights on and uh, they're not super bright, so you can kind of dim them and change the colors a little bit to make it uh, fit a little bit more of a relaxing uh, type, of, type of vibe, right? Um, and then another thing you can possibly do would be getting some blue light blocking glasses. Um, I believe mine are from Amazon Uvex, uh, really cheap brand, they're this blue. This might answer your question, Veg. Easy and delicious meals. Hey Alexa, stop. New book mail on Sunday, Jamie Oliver. Hey Alexa. Hey Alexa. From simple suppers and family favorites to weekend dishes. Are you kidding me? That's that's staying in. Okay, so note to self: we cannot have the Amazon Alexa plugged in while I say the word Amazon. Um, so anyways, uh, we that, can staying in. UVEX. Yeah. UVEX. That's what we were talking about. So you can get UVEX blue light blocking glasses on Amazon. I'm waiting for it. Nope. Uh, on Amazon for probably like 10 to $20. Um, and you can look like a complete geek with those things on, or you can spend like, I don't know, 50 to $100 and get some that don't look so uh, futuristic and weird. Um, but I have had great success just using the, the cheaper brands for that. Um, so that also gets us into the discussion of caffeine. So as far as caffeine goes, caffeine does have a half-life of six hours roughly, give or take. Um, everybody's a little bit different on how fast they metabolize caffeine. So this just essentially means that if you consume 200 milligrams of caffeine at noon, then by 6 p.m. you still have 100 milligrams in your system. So a basic recommendation that we have would be cutting your caffeine intake completely out after noon, um, unless your schedule is like super crazy. But this is just assuming that you go to bed at like a, a regular time frame, 9 p.m. or so, right? Um, so that pretty much covers caffeine. Um, another thing that we like to utilize in terms of uh, promoting more of that parasympathetic side before we go to sleep would be using some sort of stress management technique. Um, this very well could be journaling. Uh, if you enjoy journaling, uh, maybe instead of journaling on your phone, you actually get a pen and paper and write down uh, in, a, in a journal so that you're not getting the blue light emitted, right? Um, some other things we like to utilize would be uh, breath work. So we kind of talked about breath work and how you can pull yourself more into a parasympathetic side by prolonging your exhales. Um, another thing we like to do is box breathing. Um, so a quick Google search on box breathing, but essentially it would be 
let's say a four second inhale, you would hold that inhale for four seconds, you would exhale for four seconds, and then you would hold that and just continue to repeat that. If you still can't calm down doing that, maybe you do box breathing, but then you double the exhale. So the exhale is actually going to be more parasympathetic and the inhale is more sympathetic. Um, so if you're ever tired, maybe you just do a bunch of quick inhales and that can bring you into more of a sympathetic state. Um, some other things that can help you calm down in the evening could be something like foam rolling, stretching, deep breathing, nasal breathing. We will have a whole podcast on nasal breathing, I'm sure. Um, and again, we can't emphasize full exhales enough. Um, so some other things would be uh, the vagus nerve. So we won't get into the specifics of the vagus nerve, um, but if you do look at any type of uh, vagus nerve stimulatory exercise, um, such as laying on your back and then taking your eyes and having them fall to the side and then focusing as much as you can peripherally to that side can help stimulate your, your vagus nerve. So, um, go, yeah, I think I'm going to throw it over to you, Kyle. Yeah. A lot of great points to improve our sleep. And I think a very highly undervalued one is stress regulation, right? So I'm pretty sure we've all had those nights where, you know, we're full of anxiety and stress and we're tossing and turning in our, uh, in our beds and we're, we're spending way too much time trying to force ourselves, force ourselves to go to sleep. And I think having a stress journal is a very great way to help, you know, write down your thoughts and manage the stress physically. So what we can do is like write down our negative thoughts in that diary and, you know, we can reframe our thinking when it comes to those negative thoughts. Try to put those thoughts into a more positive manner. And at the end of the day, you know, you can physically and metaphorically put that book down and put that diary down and those thoughts away for the day, right? So we can use meditation as well um, shortly after waking that can help with some stress management. Um, you can reduce your stress by, I guess, limiting the, the content that you consume as well, first thing in the morning. So you don't wanna be um, consuming like social media. Um, a lot of people turn to um, the news, watching TV on the news. Sometimes mm -hmm. that can really set your day off into uh, the wrong path, essentially, right? Yeah, uh, I, I love that. That's a great point because a lot of people like to calm down in the evenings by watching TV, which there's nothing wrong with that. But some people will watch things like Game of Thrones and see people like get stabbed and shot and stuff like that. And then, you know, they go to sleep 20 minutes later and they're like, I can't sleep. Well, maybe it's because you're watching people get killed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So really taking control of what you're consuming is also a, a big deal, right? Yeah, so one other thing that we can do to improve our sleep is um, stimulus control of behavior. So controlling certain stimuli that lead us to engaging in certain behaviors. So our brain is really good at creating associations, right? So if, you're, if you spend more of your time in bed awake, your brain's going to start to associate that you're bed um, and being awake. So we really want to recondition ourselves into associating our beds as a place of um, sleep. So only going to bed when you're sleepy. And if you're awake, you can't go back to sleep within 15 to 20 minutes. You should get out of bed, try to do something relaxing in dark or a uh, very dim light. So uh, box breathing, um, foam rolling, meditation, listening to very calming music, something that will, you know, get you into a more relaxed state. And when you're ready to go back into bed, you are um, sleepy, right? Yeah, I think that is a really good takeaway right there. Um, making your bedroom a, a sacred place, right? You sleep there and you recover there. 
you don't lay in bed and eat and you don't lay in bed and watch TV. Um, you associate your bed with sleep and recovery versus associating your bed with, um, you know, work and stuff like that. Um, I think that's a really, really good point. Um, and then on top of that, um, sleep environment. So, you know, making sure that your bedroom is a, a cooler temperature. Um, the recommendations would be somewhere between 62 and 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and then on top of that, making sure that you are trying to get rid of as much light as possible from your bedroom. So uh, we have actually a blackout shades. Um, so we have we have blinds that we pull down and then we put uh, blackout shades on top of that. Um, so that really, really helps me. Um, I'm one of those people I need it like as dark as possible. Um, plus, that's going to give you a higher quality uh, sleep, too. Um, and then to your point with the the music, so um, listening to something calming, I absolutely love that idea as well. Um, so some things that I like to listen to would just be, um, I'm, I'm on uh, Spotify. So I'll just go on Spotify and I'll type in like alpha waves. Um, I'll do like 432 hertz. Um, and then I also just, I generally enjoy listening to like lo-fi music, classical music, um, really when I've dove into like the frequency stuff, um, the biggest takeaway was just listen to music that you enjoy, that calms you down, regardless of what it happens to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You really don't want to be listening to like really aggressive music. You know, the stuff that you listen to in the gym, going back to that topic about associations, you know, if you're listening to very like heavy metal music, like when you're about to go to sleep and you associate, you know, that type of music, like when you're in the gym and your heart mm -hmm. rate's up, you know, that's not a very um, optimal way for you to, you know, get that heart rate down and to be in a better position to optimize sleep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like almost like habit pairing where mm -hmm. like you can pair uh, – maybe a, a short meditation, some foam rolling, and some 432 hertz 10 minutes before bed. And you do that every night before bed. And every time that you hear that music because you associate it with going to sleep, um, every time that you hear it, your body starts to downregulate some. Um, so yeah, absolutely love that too. Yeah. So your body actually starts producing melatonin about two hours before your regular bedtime. So I would say at least an hour before is when you should start doing your pre-bed routines if you can, right? So mm -hmm. having a, a designated time to, you know, do these, these pre-bed routines is really going to help set that, um, these good habits towards mm -hmm. improving our sleep. 100%, yep. Um, one last little thing that we can throw in. Um, I'm not like a, a circadian rhythm, uh, like guru or anything like that. But, um, I had also heard that if you expose yourself to moonlight, then that's going to produce more melatonin as well. Um, so if you do happen to be able to get outside and there's like a full moon or something, um, maybe stare at it, gaze at it for a while. And, uh, who knows you might, uh, turn into a werewolf, you might benefit and get a great night's sleep. Love that. Yeah. I think that's a, a really awesome way to, to end this podcast. We talked about a lot of great stuff, a lot of great takeaways in this podcast. Yeah. And I think the biggest takeaway from this podcast is going to be building awareness around these habits, right? As we mentioned in the beginning, it's not like you nail these habits every single day, right? Like some days I don't get a good night's sleep. Um, maybe I fall out of my routine of my bedtime, uh, my bedtime habits. Um, but I become aware of that and then I'm like, okay, well, um, I'm going to prioritize that this week. Yeah. Very well said. I got nothing. Else. But I think that, uh, sums everything up for episode two. Um, so Thank you guys so much for listening and you guys can find us on Instagram. My handle is at Adam Neth and the podcast handle is at lift lounge. And then Kyle, your handle is. Yeah. If you guys want to follow me, that's K Y L O dot C O R T E Z. 
kylo.cortez thank you so much for listening guys catch you guys in the next episode thank you guys